0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I recently had the absolute pleasure and delight of sitting down with Dr. Kalinda Lee from the Atlanta History Center to talk about all things history and what keeps her passionate and how she got drawn into history as a career. This interview also covers some of the details of the History Center's temporary exhibit, Black Citizenship in the Age of Jim Crow, and that's a topic that Kalinda is really passionate about. So, enjoy! As we said in the introduction, I am here today with Dr. Kalinda Lee, who is the Atlanta History Center Vice President of Historical Interpretation and Community Partnerships, did I get that title
1: correct? You got it correct. It's a mouthful.
0: It is. I always worry because uh, anytime somebody comes in with a title that's like multi leveled like that, I'm nine times out of 10, I'm going to mess it up. But my copy paste did me well. Uh, first of all, I would love to hear your story and how you became a historian and what drove you to that field and what keeps you going in that field.
1: Sure. It's a funny story, I think. So uh, my mom and my stepfather are academics. So I'm going to go to the Wayback Machine for you. Perfect. So I remember being about 16 and saying to them, I will never get a PhD. I will never be a humanities scholar because I'm going to do something important with my life. That's what I said (laughs) to my parents. (laughs) (laughs) We we could give you a, a pass for that. So I went off to college, biology, pre med. But my senior year in high school, um, I had been given, you know, you get these school wide awards for like the best student in da 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 da. Well, I got the social science award. <laughs> despite myself. And then I went off to college and I was in this honors program that required that we take certain courses. So I had to take these history courses and I had to take these philosophy courses. And again, begrudgingly, I was loving them. So I started taking more and then I started taking more. And I looked up sometime toward probably the end of my sophomore year and realized that I was, I was on a track to be a major in both of those subjects, actually. So I, you know, I had a kind of major heart-to-heart with my mom and my stepdad about it, who were all gung-ho. And then I had a, a talk with my father about it. And I'm not I'm not going to quote exactly what he said, (laughs) but he said something like, what are you going to do with that esoteric BS? Right. And and so I said, well, you know, I'll go to law school. He was a lawyer. He ate that up. And I left college applying to both PhD and law programs and actually accepted admission in a dual degree program that I had devised, which was going to be like a PhD at NYU and a law degree at Yale. And two years after I deferred my entrance to Yale Law, the dean of Yale Law School called me and he said, young lady, you're holding somebody's seat. What are you going to do? And I had, you know, just this like flash moment. And I said, I'm not coming. And so that set me off on a path to figure out what I was going to do with this history degree. I ended up in a kind of really circuitous way recognizing that what was really setting my heart on fire as I lived and worked and schooled in New York was this kind of public humanities thing. I didn't necessarily want to be in a classroom. I wanted to maybe do documentary filmmaking or museums or like it was that stuff that got me excited, the connections between the past and the present, the so what stuff that got me excited and the seeing people kind of come alive and be excited about making those connections. And So it was a a fairly long circuitous route. I won't take you through all of it, but I will say I worked for a nonprofit arts organization. I managed um, a contemporary, a nonprofit contemporary art museum. I've worked in a few uh, museums. I actually, at one point, second-guessed myself and thought, like, this is a kind of rough road, and did. Except a professorship position, I was a professor of history at um, Loyola University Chicago. But I just kept coming back to this need to do programming and kind of what we call public history. Mm-hmm. So I went back, I got a PhD in American Studies from Emory University, and I've I've been keeping it moving in the public humanities for a good little while now. Gosh, almost it's been twenty years almost since I earned my doctorate. So it's been a minute. You're such a busy bee. You're
0: like a superstriver. I have a theory that probably part of why you are so good at making those connections is because your background is from a disparate assortment of study, which gives you a broader sense of the world, I think. If you've already studied medicine and biology and then considered law and then looking at other parts of the humanities history, you see the vast expanse of history instead of the way people tend to think of it, which is edicts from thrones and in seats of government. And there's so much more going on, which I love.
1: Yeah, I think that's really true. And I think that the other thing that's really true for me, as cliche as it might sound, is I'm really clear that this work is on purpose for me. And if there's anything I suggest to anybody, it's figure out what that work is that's on purpose for you. Sometimes people talk about it in terms of your passion. Mm -hmm. But I'll tell you, every single day, I don't wake up feeling passionate about what's on my task list. But I do know that it's on purpose for me. And that means that there's there's something I can bring to this. There's some energy, some spark, some inspiration, some knowledge that is unique to me then nobody else can kind of bring to this. And so um, that matters to me tremendously. And it matters to me that people connect with their own passions about history. Because the truth is people actually love history. People are always talking history. They didn't like history class, but they love history. They want to know what came before them. They want to say, like, Grandma, tell me why. They want to know about great so-and-so-and-so. They want to make connections in that way. They want to figure out how to learn the lessons of a the path, from the lessons of the past to kind of plan for a brighter future because people want those tools. But they don't want to know exactly what year so-and-so crossed the bridge or, you know, that's what they're not as interested in. And even as a history professor, I used to tell my students all the time, I don't care about that. I really don't. If you understand generally what happened and why, the factors that have been motivating people over time, the interactions between people, you'll put it together in your head. Like, you'll be able to sequence it. You'll you'll be able to make sense of it. Um, and that's what I'm really interested in. I love you.
0: Uh, we always say that the, the memorization of names and dates is what kills kids' interest in history very early on, because history is full of a lot of great, weird stuff. But when that's kind of what you're getting fed to regurgitate, it robs it of all of its beauty, I think. I read a tweet that someone wrote after seeing you speak in which uh, they quoted you saying, to do good history, you have to do all the history. And I love that quote. Will you talk a little bit about what that means? Sure.
1: So one thing I would say is history is most society's greatest form of propaganda right? Because the history isn't what happened in the past. History is ascribing meaning to what happened in the past. That's what history is. That's what it means to do history. And so if you look at national projects, as far back as we can Imagine like, you know, we can look at ancient Egyptians and Mesopotamians and like when we see what their governments were up to, a lot of it was about creating a narrative and then getting people to kind of align with that. And what that means is that you're always doing the selective work. You're always editing. What I am really passionate about is doing All of it. Let's remove ourselves from this this process of trying to edit folks out, trying to edit dissension out, trying to edit conflict out, trying to edit the messy bits that don't fit into that narrative out. The messy bits that don't fit into the meta-narrative, that's the interesting stuff. That's the stuff um, that, well, one, it's interesting because nobody taught it to you. And two, it's interesting because it aligns with what we already know about life, which is that we don't just get in line and think about it all the same way and do it all the same way. And while the victors may write the history, their stories are not all of the stories. So I am about the business of doing it all. So in my role at the Atlanta History Center, what that means is it's not just about the politicians and the business leaders and, you know, thinking about who made history in that way. It's about the ordinary people who every day you know, make the decisions in their communities and in their in their churches and in their families who really make history. And the example that I always give people when they ask me about that is I say, people always talk about Atlanta and entrepreneurship, right, and this kind of New South rising narrative. And they say, you know, it was about business and the creation of manufacturing down here after the Civil War that really distinguished Atlanta from other southern cities and ultimately helped to make it this bigger southern city, maybe even the capital of the New South. And they talk about the business leaders who pushed that forward. And I say, well, let's talk about the child laborers whose efforts are entirely unsung. But if it wasn't for them in those textile mills, if it wasn't for them taking care of other people's babies when they were yet babies themselves then we wouldn't have had any of that. So let's look at their stories, even if we don't know their names. I love it.
0: Um, this ties nicely into my next question because I want to talk to you about the exhibit that just opened a couple weeks ago, uh, Black Citizenship in the Age of Jim Crow. And I, I love it because it busts a lot of myths <laughs> um, and it it tells the whole story, which I really love. Will you talk a little bit about the genesis of that exhibit coming to Atlanta? Sure.
1: So Black Citizenship in the Age of Jim Crow was curated by New York Historical Society. And they curated it from the beginning with the intention that it be a traveling exhibition. This was done in collaboration um, with the Gilder Lehrman Institute and with the National Museum of African American History, um, the Smithsonian Institution. And what they were attempting to do was at least twofold. One thing was to say, like, let's look at this period of history beginning in Reconstruction that often gets short shrift, right? We go like right from – in African-American history, we'll go from Civil War to Civil Rights. Mm -hmm. Um, In Southern history, as is kind of generally understood, there's this – Crazy meta narrative that talks about the Civil War and then this period of like failure in Reconstruction, and then we're into world wars. Um, and so they want to really look at, they wanted to really look at that period of African American engagement and agency and struggle for full citizenship. That, that are those kind of forgotten years. So that was one thing. The other thing that they wanted to do because they're in New York was to say this whole Jim Crow story is not just a Southern story. It's a national story. Um, and what are the implications of that? Let's look at, for them, our own history and really understand the ways that not only that, that happened back then, but what it means to us now, what this legacy is. Um, and so you, we were compelled by that. We went to visit in New York. We were really compelled by what we saw, but... We wanted to change it some. We wanted to augment it some. One thing that I was really concerned about as an historian is that Atlanta figures really prominently in that story. And Atlanta does not talk about that era of history. We often talk about the Civil War. We love to navel gaze about the Civil War, right? And then... (laughs) and then we just apparently sat down and waited for Martin Luther King to be born. And so that's not the way it went and we need to really dig into that and we have some singular aspects of um our local and regional history that really contribute to that story. And and our huge mythbusters about how um politically, socially economically active African-Americans have been in trying to achieve equity throughout their history. And so um, fortunately, uh, New York was amenable to a pretty major um, augmentation, amplification of that traveling exhibition. And we set about the work of doing that here in partnership with two major institutions, the Atlanta University Center Library and um, Spelman College. And hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about why them and who else helped.
0: You mentioned that you added additional context to this exhibit by including a number of Atlanta specific elements both throughout it. And then there's a beautiful room full of art at the end that I was just blown away by um will you talk about those additions how you chose what you were going to add maybe that big regimental flag that um kind of had me near tears um there are a lot of really amazing pieces in that show
1: yeah um i would love to talk about the things that we added in atlanta um as we think about black citizenship and the quest for full equity. So let's begin at the beginning with the United States Colored Troops regimental flag. That flag was painted by, first of all, an artist of quite some note, David Bustle Bowser. Um, Try to say that fast five times, always. (laughs) It's a tongue twister. So it's a beautiful artifact in and of itself, right? It's a hand-painted wonderful flag that um, has the motto in it, let us prove ourselves men. The motto is let us prove ourselves men. And it says everything um, about what African-American men who joined the fight to make sure that the Union won the Civil War uh, were thinking of. And so 265,000 black men, officially join this struggle, pause for a moment and think about that. That narrative has been written again and again as if African Americans were emancipated but did nothing to affect their own emancipation. So that's number one, agency in really turning the tide in the war. And think about also what it means for people who had been enslaved and even those who were free to have been at best, second-class citizens wherever they might have lived in this country to dedicate themselves to the cause of keeping the union intact, proving their patriotism, their manhood, their humanity, um, and earning, as it were, uh, their right to American citizenship. It completely subverts this narrative of, of people trying to suggest that anything was given them. So that's the first thing. And then, you know, it also makes us rethink uh, what Reconstruction then meant. Because as soon as the war was won by the North... One of the things that was required was that African-Americans be um, emancipated and afforded citizenship rights. And that meant for black men that they, they gained the right to vote. And not only did they gain the right to vote, but they gained the right to represent themselves in elected office. So by 1868, there was one national representative and three state representatives in the state house who were African-Americans and a number of other African-American elected officials throughout the state. There are some really substantial things to think about in terms of this. Two of the people who were um, state legislators had been enslaved. Imagine that. These are people who weren't even allowed to read and write. Right? And who had learned to do these things in any case, and were about the business of representing the state, one of them, in particular, Tunis Campbell, we do um a museum theater piece in the exhibition about so if you come on the weekends, you'll get to meet the past through Tunis Campbell. And one of the things that Tunis talks about in that experience is how he won his elected seat on um the basis of a campaign. That advocated for universal schooling, which had not been available for whites or blacks. So universal primary and secondary education, land redistribution, not only for uh, African-Americans who had toiled for generations without any compensation, but also for white yeoman farmers. And um, a more equitable distribution of wealth and political power throughout the state. Imagine that, this is 1868, and there's no way that he or Aaron Bradley or Henry McNeil Turner, the other two who served, were elected without the support of both African-Americans and whites. So there was a moment, there was a very interesting moment in 1868, not 1968, 1868, when these people were, were putting forth really progressive ideas, and were voted into office. And even though they were pushed out, um, even though there was an incredible backlash, um, even though it began, right then began this rise of uh, vitriolic white supremacy, violent white supremacy, the rise of the KKK and then its rebirth in 1915 at Stone Mountain um, right here in Georgia, even though all of those things were happening, these people and their progeny persisted In this fight to be included, they kept going back to vote again. When the three representatives from Georgia were ousted, physically ousted from the state house, they went to the president and they said, you made a promise. We have a constitution. We need to be reinstated. And they were reinstated, at least for a period of time, uh, before Jim Crow laws really made it impossible for them to assume those seats. Tunis Campbell fought and fought and fought and fought to such an extent that he was threatened with prosecution. They were going to charge him with malfeasance in office. And they said, but if you leave, if you abandon this, if you go away, then we will leave you alone. We won't pursue you. And he, he stayed and he fought the fight and he was imprisoned and sentenced to hard labor. So it's essentially re-enslaved. And then, and then he left and When he was finally freed from that, he left and and wrote a book called Of My Sufferings in the State of Georgia. Um, But, you know, these people um, are not just individuals who are interesting to know. They represent, if you forget all of their names, they represent an effort to represent themselves, to access this basic kind of American dream of autonomy and equity. Um, And they were courageous. In the face of some obstacles that I'm not quite sure I would be willing to be so courageous in the face of. And then you mentioned the art. So um, there are two other things that I want to mention about the exhibition um, and what we added. One thing is that we focused on uh, one thing that was singular in Atlanta. And that is one of the ways that African-Americans fought, if you will, for citizenship, for equity, for equity. Was to educate themselves. Uh, it it was clear, right, that the powers that be had understood how dangerous education could be because it was forbidden, and so they formed schools um, in order to not only learn to read and write, but affect you know the promise of, of of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for everyone. And in Atlanta, they founded the Atlanta University Center. Ultimately, five distinct schools that ultimately in 1929 came together under that consortium. It is the largest institution of learning that is the center, all of the schools together, for African Americans in the country to this day. Um, And those schools were founded immediately in the wake of emancipation. Imagine what it means. Atlanta didn't even have a public high school for African Americans until 1924. And in 1867, 1868, Mm -hmm. you know, 1881, you're forming institutions of higher learning. That was incredible. And people were coming out of those institutions who changed the course of life in this place. They settled here in Atlanta, many of them. Um, They agitated for rights here. They built other schools. They formed businesses. They ran for political office, even though they weren't allowed to do so. So all these wonderful things were happening. And one of the the key things that happened um, was that Um, W.E.B. Du Bois, who was a professor at Atlanta University, uh, ultimately went on to be the major founder of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP. So Atlanta was really a crucible of African-American action and and struggle um, and, and brilliance and agency in achieving full humanity human rights even more than civil rights. And it completely belies this notion that African Americans and especially African Americans in the South were complacent in the face of their subjugation. They were not.
0: There's uh one of the my favorite pieces is that beautiful portrait that's blown up of all of the educators together with the the talker next to it that says each one, teach one. It was so moving, aside from the fact that just like those dresses are gorgeous. Um, but it, it really is, like, you realize at a time when we don't think of necessarily—I mean, I can't imagine, one, in the ideal circumstances, creating what became such an incredibly rich educational history. But then to think about the fact that this was not the best of circumstances, and they were fighting tooth and nail every way, it's like, if that doesn't inspire people, I don't know what will. Um, I get choked up just talking about it, because I love it so much. Um, We've been talking about all of these things that are really separate from the narrative we often get, which leaves out this period of Black agency in Atlanta, but also was going on in other places. Why do you think that's been so
1: downplayed over the years? One of the ways that the repression of African Americans, but I would say like, you know, one of the ways that the repression of anybody is legitimated is to suggest that they didn't want anything better for themselves, that they weren't struggling for anything better for themselves, um, that they weren't capable of anything better for themselves. And that narrative, unfortunately, is really still with us, right? So you make people responsible for their own marginalization in one way or another. And that narrative kind of lets a bigger society off the hook, but it also lets all of us as individuals off the hook, right? Like, I don't have to think about that on my way to get groceries or I don't have to do this work for other people because for goodness sake, they're happy and, you know, they're not even doing that work for themselves. So I think it serves a really important purpose um, consciously and sometimes even subconsciously um, to suggest that folks weren't always seeking freedom and equity, but we know better. That narrative, certainly in African-American history, extends For as long as there's been such a thing as African-Americans, which is to say, you know, when people were captured in Africa, they weren't African-Americans. They were Africans um, who were enslaved. So slaves weren't brought from Africa. African people were brought to America and enslaved. And from the moment of that capture, we have all of these examples of how people, human beings, have a will to freedom. Have a will to 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 autonomy, have a will to self-expression, and people have been engaging in in fighting for the rights for that to be seen and understood and respected forever. Um, so there were no it, there was not a reality to happy slaves. There was not a reality to Jim Crow, just meaning that you were separate over here and I was separate over there. In fact, it very much was about, legitimating how some people are lesser than other people and what that means in terms of their access. One of the things I love about the traveling exhibition, um, the part that was curated in New York that you can see um, in Atlanta and, and elsewhere when it moves on, is how they really do a great job in talking about Jim Crow and the way that Jim Crow is not just separate but equal. Jim Crow is about very specifically saying African Americans are not suited for equity. If you allow African Americans to fully participate in this democracy, they will destroy it. Right? So Jim Crow, this caricature, and Zip Coon, his cousin, are are the people who are responsible for for crime. And they are the people who are responsible for poor governance. And they are the people who are responsible for our general lack of safety. They are the people who would be responsible for the fall of European civilization as we know it. If you pause for a moment and think about that, then you would understand that even though separate but equal is no longer with us, the ideologies of Jim Crow are very much still alive. Um, so, so there, there's lots there, I think, to unpack. And the other thing I would say with regard to your question is that there are so many ways to resist. Everybody's not a marcher. Yeah. Everybody's not running for office. Some people paint. Some people write poetry. Um, you know, some people, each one teach one. Some people become teachers and help people develop the critical thinking skills to make decisions for themselves. There are lots and lots and lots of ways to resist. And there are lots and lots of ways to express yourself. Because I think sometimes when we talk about resistance, then we place everybody in this context of reacting to something. And just being fully human doesn't have to be a reaction to people who think you're not fully human. Just being fully human is just all of our drive to be, you know, fully ourselves. And so African-Americans never, not at any point in their history, stopped trying to do that.
0: One of the things I love about this exhibit is that there is... um a way in which it breaks down concepts for people in very simple ways that are easy to digest. There's a great segment on it where it talks about voter suppression, and it's kind of a simple but very illustrative kind of board of interactive flip sections. Will you talk a little bit about sort of balancing those kind of interactive things with your more— I won't even say standard because it's that— doesn't really encapsulate what it is, but sort of what people would expect of more static imagery with, with text uh, commentary attached and how you balance all of those out to make one
1: big cohesive idea in an exhibition. Yeah. So one thing we're really proud of at the Atlanta History Center is how we like to take big, sometimes hard, daunting topics and make them accessible For visitors of any age, of any educational level, of any background. As a professor, I learned that talking at people never, ever works in terms of retaining any kind of meaningful knowledge, right? It's about kind of planting enough seeds so that people come to discoveries themselves. Those discoveries stay with them forever. And so, In our exhibitions, one of the things that we want to always try to do is create ways for people to discover for themselves and make connections about ideas that feel relevant to them um, to have their say and sometimes to leave their say behind so that other people can learn from the people who came before them. And so that was a big part of what we added to this exhibition. We loved the content um, that we saw when we went to visit in New York, but we were concerned that it was a lot of kind of talking in one direction, right? So we've got wonderful panels and labels and all, and they're just talking at you. But you need a moment To think about, to digest, to respond to all of this content and make connections for yourself. So, for example, in one section where we're thinking about the ways and talking about displaying the ways that um, Jim Crow functioned. And one of the things that Jim Crow did was to constantly assert that African-Americans are not capable of self-governance, let alone governance of anyone else. We have this mirror and this interactive experience where we invite people to look at themselves and to answer the question, what does a good leader look like? What does it mean to be a good leader to you while you gaze into your own eyes and hopefully Think about consciously or subconsciously what you're seeing in yourself because that's our way forward, right? It's not going to be some messianic character who comes to save us all. Right. We are the ones. (laughs) Um, And so um, we also think about how people visit cultural institutions as families, um, as school groups. um, And so with those kinds of things in mind, how do you broach a topic of this sort, with a very young person, um, I'm a mother. I have my youngest. My younger child is eight, and this is important content, but it's heavy. Mm-hmm. How can somebody like me have a conversation starter, something to begin a conversation that's going to be age appropriate with a kiddo, the age of my son? So, when you think about that U.S. Um, colored Troops regimental flag. One of the things that we have is a little small table where you can draw your own flag and represent the colors, the ideas, the symbols that mean family to you or that that you think represent yourself and have a conversation about that. What does it mean to carry a banner? What does it mean to stand for something? We have an interactive exercise where you can pack a bag. Because some people pack their bags, right? Millions of people packed their bags and said, I've had enough of this Jim Crow South. Um, We'll try it up north, or as some of us like to say, up south. Um, (laughs) Or I'll go off to Europe or whatever the case may be. Why didn't everybody make that choice? What were you leaving behind? What would you take with you? What would you do once you got to where you're going? And so kids love to play with that and think about what they would pack, um, what they would have to leave behind, um, what it would mean to them to leave behind, for example, land where all of your ancestors are buried and where they labored without compensation for generations. So that's a tough conversation, but... That little kernel of just that interactivity and thinking about, like, what would I I take and what would I keep? That's a great way in. So we try to do as many of those as we can fit in.
0: I love that idea because uh, as difficult as it is to broach subjects that are often very dark and unpleasant with kids, like, I like to think of how that becomes a layered and nuanced lesson when they're a little bit older and they are taking in more of the details that are uh, a little bit harder to share with a younger kid. They will remember doing that activity and thinking about what that meant to leave something behind. So it kind of, it's exactly what you were talking about earlier, where self-discovery will imprint something a lot more poignantly than just being talked to. They will remember doing that when they later learn another part of the lesson. and So I love it.
1: Um, May I say something else about that? Yes. The one other thing I wanted to say, because it's so important to me, and I'm glad you phrased um, your point the way that you did when you said, you know, when you're looking at something dark and difficult, there are yet these ways to unpack it. I want to... just point out that one of the reasons that we wanted to bring this exhibition, or at least I wanted to bring this exhibition, I'll own that, that part of things is because we center Jim Crow when we're talking about Jim Crow. But this exhibition is black citizenship in the age of Jim Crow. And that's a important distinction. The black citizenship part of that conversation is really what's centered in this discussion. So while Jim Crow was set up in opposition to that, the center of this exhibition is about African-American agency and hope and inspiration and creativity. And that in and of itself is a flip in terms of the way that we talk about things and think about things. Uh, It enables us to look at people's productivity and genius and courage, not only in reaction to their dehumanization, but just as an affirmation of their humanity. It's a really different thing and it's an important thing
0: uh i I would concur that exhibit, like I said, it covers a lot of very dark history, but it ultimately and part of it is because of the way you've pasted it out and the end is all art. It still feels very celebratory of the persistence of the black community through incredibly difficult times, which uh to me it's like that's the perfect send off right You see all of these beautiful things that have bloomed out of this difficult period and a um a lot of really unfair treatment, Um, So, and I I love art, so I was a little bit drooling over some of those paintings. This brings me to my next question, which is a difficult two-parter. What is your favorite piece in this exhibit? And then, and it may or may not be the same thing, what do you think is the most important piece in the exhibit? I know these are unkind and cruel questions to ask. (laughs)
1: They are. I love everything. Um, (laughs) So in terms of my favorite piece, I'm going to cheat a little bit and say my favorite thing, my favorite area of the exhibition is the art section. It was, first of all, a thrill to me as an historian and a curator of history um, to get to do an art exhibit, a little mini art exhibition in here. Um, I don't often get the chance to do that. And I think that it was so important to include because it leaves us in a place, one, where we can think about resistance and Um, creativity in new and different ways than we often do. So thinking about what the folks who are represented in that section produced um, and looking at it and marveling with it and being sparked by it um, is important. First of all, all of those works in the art section are works that were produced by people who participated in Atlanta University's um, annual jury show which was the largest exposition of African-American art. Um, And in fact, at the time, the largest exposition of African-descended people's art anywhere in the world, ever. And that persisted for um, a little over 30 years, from 1942 to um, the early 1970s, what that means necessarily is the artists who were producing those works at that time, they were all retrospective to some extent in terms of the period of time that we're thinking about. So we're moving out of that era, but reflecting on it and using that to to, to make a statement today. So it's a wonderful send-off, as you were saying, right? Because we can do the same thing, whatever our genre, whatever our medium. Um, So that's one thing. The other thing is that it's beautiful to me in large part because it represents where I hope we're going as cultural institutions, which is that rather than being competitive, we are in this work together trying to create more full narratives. So the Georgia Museum of Art, the High Museum of Art, Clark Atlanta University Museum, they all were wonderful collaborators and partners in making those those art pieces available, so it's a kind of unique and singular opportunity to get to see what people um, who had participated in that competition, um, like I said, produced um, in their reflections on African American experience in painting and sculpture mm-hmm. as well. Um, that metaphor piece is <sighs> devastatingly yes. beautiful. So so that's a wonderful kind of aspect of that. And I think that the other thing about the artwork that is so meaningful to me is sometimes we don't have the words, right? Like sometimes you just, something is evoked and you, you get the feeling, you understand it. There's a universality of human experience and what it pulls out of you. And you don't have to know this particular story. You don't have to have learned this particular history for it to hit you and something to resonate and something to connect and to understand how you are connected by people to people who are, you know, decades removed, who are in terms of identity, very different than yourself. So that's my favorite section of the exhibition, if you'll let me get away with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in terms of I think what was your other question most important? What do you think is the most important piece? Usually I refuse to answer this question about Uh, exhibitions, but I'm going to name something this time. You can plead the fifth if you want. No, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to go for it. And I'm going to say that to me, the two most important pieces in the exhibition are the portrait of Dred Scott Mm -hmm. that opens the exhibition, because in suing for his freedom, Dred Scott is often portrayed as, oh, people will say the slave Dred Scott sued for his freedom when his master took him to a free state. And ultimately, of course, Dred Scott lost that suit and and was in fact re-enslaved. But what you get in the opening of this exhibition with this portrait of the man, Dred Scott, is that you get that this human being who was enslaved. Dred Scott. This man sued for an opportunity to be a full American, and that's where we start this conversation. And it's before the Civil War, obviously. It's before the air, the time period of most consideration, which is you know between kind of 1865 and um, the end of World War One. Is most of the exhibition. It's well before that. He was saying, not just, I don't want to be enslaved. He was saying, I am a full human being. I should be a full citizen. I'm an American person. And so that's a wonderful place to begin. And then I think, you know, I would go back to the United States Colored Troops regimental flag as the other that I would call out. And I would say that I think that that is so important because I meet students all the time who are blown away by the fact that African Americans were fighting in all kinds of ways for their own freedom and in particular were, were donning a national uniform and fighting for this country and for their own freedom even before they were you know, universally emancipated. I will tell you just a quick kind of little story. One of the earliest museum consultancies I had in my career was to work with Frank Smith, at the African-American Civil War Memorial and Freedom Foundation, I was introduced to the idea of how important the United States colored troops were. The project of the memorial to African-Americans who fought in the Civil War was to identify and name each of them and provide a place where African-Americans could go and find the names of their ancestors who labored for their own freedom and understand them as fully human beings and not some caricature of some enslaved person. When I first went to do that work, I didn't think it had anything to do with me personally. 265,000 people are a lot of people, but in the grand scheme of things, right, like, you know, we are a nation of millions and millions and millions of people. Um, And I, I happened to mention to my father that I was doing this work And he said, you know, my grandfather, who was born in 1880, said that he had an uncle who fought with the United States Colored Troops, and his name was Emmanuel, and I knew where my people had been enslaved. And so I looked on the roster just to see if his name was there, and I wasn't expecting to find it, and I did. Um, So this was a man who was enslaved, who self-emancipated. Right. What we like to characterize as running away. He emancipated himself and he immediately went to war. Yeah. Um, with, without thought for his – well, I'm sure he did have thought for his life, but he, he thought it more important. Yeah to fight for the liberation of others. And he did. And he survived the war. Um, And subsequent to finding his name on that memorial, I was driven to go back to that place where I knew those ancestors were from. And I found the little church. And I found the brick with his initials on it. And that's a connection that African Americans don't often have. We are so unfortunately separated from our past. And I was able to then take that gift and take my son's to that place and to put their fingers on the name of that man. I think every African-American person listening to this will understand the significance and the poignance of that. It's a very different thing for us. Of course. Because we have been so separated from our past in that way and it's an incredibly humanizing thing for us. Oh, it's a beautiful story.
0: This is, as we said, you know, in some ways a hard exhibit to walk through, but it also has this celebration element to it. And I know it's only been open for a couple weeks, but I'm curious what reactions have been from the people
1: that have come to the Atlanta History Center to visit. We are excited that there have been really positive reactions to this exhibition, um, and we know that from some of the comments that people are leaving behind, but we also know it because we've been kind of lurking and watching people in the <laughs> exhibition and watching them linger and watching them. Part of part of it has actually been really beautiful because there have been so many families that came. Um, we pushed hard to be open uh, in time for the King holiday, which is one of our largest um, events of the year. And th- literally thousands of people came to visit the exhibition. We think something like close to 4,000 people came. Nice. Uh, it was a, f- a free day to the community, a community day. And it was wonderful to see multiple generations of people engaging in that exhibition together. It's also really nice to see, particularly with the museum theater piece, to see people engaging with each other, like people who who came who didn't know one another. Um, So with the museum theater piece, one of the things that Tunis Campbell's character does is he shares his backstory, and then he asks, um, before telling you, it's a little bit of a spoiler, but before telling you what happened to him, he says, what would you do? They're telling me that I can leave and they won't come after me. Or I can stay and fight, but they're coming after me. And I know what it looks like when they come after you. And 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 suddenly people who are in that space, young and old, black and white, and wherever you might be from, whatever your background might be, you have to really kind of sit for a minute and think about the implications of all of this. And it's very interesting to watch people dialogue with one another about this quandary. So people have been really positive about it. We also did something brand new for our institution, and we hosted a community dinner. Oh, cool. And we had a, a relatively small group of people in, and they went and visited the exhibition, and then they had a conversation with one another about... Not only what they thought of the exhibition, but about the ways that it mattered to them personally. So I think, like, for example, one of the first questions that people were asked as they were engaging in conversation was, um, what's your first memory of understanding that race matters?
0: Oh, that'll open some doors conversationally.
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We try really hard To create a space where people can thoughtfully engage with sometimes difficult content in a way that does not cast aspersions, um, does not shut people down, but hopefully opens people up to really exploring their own experience and being able to hear the experience of other people.
0: And now... uh what is your personal wish? Because you were so hands-on with this exhibit. I mean, in some ways it's your baby, right? (laughs) Um, What is your hope that people walk away with when they leave that last room?
1: From an historical perspective, I hope that they understand that the narrative that they've been taught might be inaccurate and that they have, um, we all have, every single one of us. I have PhD in this subject, I learned so much from the original exhibition. We all have a lot to learn about um, the ways that people, human beings, have always fought for freedom and equity. So that's one thing from an historical perspective. And from a forward-thinking perspective, as I walk out of that last room, I hope that people will understand there are a million and one ways that I can make a difference, that I can raise my voice on my own behalf and on behalf of others, and it's well worth doing.
0: My last question is silly. Are you ready? Okay. Can we talk about how handsome John Warren Davis was? (laughs) I turned that corner and saw that portrait, and I was like, holy Moses. gorgeous (laughs) gorgeous <laughs> so,
1: I have a lot of history crushes
0: <laughs>
1: I do too I think that's natural he's so handsome so many and you know like I'm just a sucker for a brilliant mind so ooh all of these incredible quotes and like they said what in what year yeah. Um, not to mention a Creative artist, right? I mean, you know, forget it. Listen, I married one, me too. <laughs> <laughs>
0: We're speaking the same language, yeah. I wow, handsome! Like, I had not seen that portrait of him before, and I just remember being kind of blown away. I was like, I, and I didn't know as much about him as I would like. Um, I then went home and was googling, it's like, oh, one of the first NWACP chapters. Oh my god, and then I'll, like, ah, oh, gorgeous. But to me, those are also the fun things that are takeaways from exhibits like this, where you're like, there's a person I really didn't know enough about, and now I want to learn everything about him because I think they're fascinating. Mm -hmm. Um, And so thank you for bringing that to me and to the Atlanta community and anyone who visits um, I I think the importance of, of exhibits like this cannot be understated thank or overstated. Yeah, it's incredibly important and, and beautiful and I appreciate all of the effort because I know none of that just magically drops into place. It's a lot of work. So thank you so much. And thank you for spending so much time with me today.
1: Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Um, and thank you for your interest in the exhibition, not only for me, but on behalf of the whole team because you know, these things don't happen with just one person.
0: No, it's a huge group effort uh, and it Uh, turned out so beautifully. So, again, thank you. Thanks. I am so, so thankful to Kalinda for spending so much time with me. And I also want to make sure I give a special thanks to Howard Pausner, who is the manager of media relations to the Atlanta History Center. He arranged this interview and he spent an entire afternoon with me at the History Center just walking around and talking while I saw the exhibit, which was an absolute joy. If you're in the Atlanta area or planning a visit sometime soon, Black citizenship in the age of Jim Crow is something you don't want to miss, especially with all of the amazing additions to it that Dr. Lee talked about. It is running until June 30th, 2020. And for more information about that exhibit and all of the other really impressive programming at the Atlanta History Center, you can visit atlantahistorycenter.com. Since that interview um, was a little longer than some of our episodes, I'm keeping listener mail very, very short, and it's funny. Um, This is from our listener, Melissa, who sent us a hilarious postcard of Bigfoot carrying spam. Uh, it's from the Spam Museum. And she writes, Holly and Tracy, you've kept me company on a 2,400-mile Midwest road trip. So I wanted to send you a postcard to say thank you. Uh, Melissa, thank you so much. I love this. <laughs> so desperately. It's the famous photograph of Bigfoot that people hold up as the, the film evidence. And he's got Spam in his hand. It makes me happy. I hope he had a sumptuous and delicious meal <laughs> uh fried spam sandwiches big big hit at my house as a kid if you would like to write to us you could do so at history podcast at iheartradio.com you can also find us on social media as missed in history and if you would like to subscribe to the podcast you can do that on the iheartradio app at apple podcasts or wherever it is you like to listen